My name is Siddhi, and it is so great to be here with all of you today. We are in the midst of our wisdom literature series, and over the past few weeks, we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. For those of you who may not have been here the past few Sundays, two weekends ago, Pastor Omer gave us an awesome intro to the book, covering the who, what, when, where, why, as well as why God's people chose to canonize such a controversial and challenging text. I think the general gist of Ecclesiastes can be best summed up by this picture that I took roaming around Hollywood last week. It says, one day y'all will die, have a great life, ha, ha, ha. I mean, that is kind of the general thrust of what's going on in this book, right? Ecclesiastes chronicles the voice of Kohelet, also known as the teacher, and his very dark and depressing musings and reflections on the absolute futility of life, given the fact that we're all going to die one day anyway. And then two weekends ago, last weekend, Pastor Tom dug into the last few verses of Ecclesiastes, covering what it means to follow God's commandments today, even in the face of that absurdity. Given that we're nearing the end of our wisdom literature series, Pastor Danielle is going to take us home next weekend with Song of Songs. I thought it would be a useful exercise for us today to take a step back and think about how we might revisit the book of Ecclesiastes as Christians with the gospel accounts, the Jesus story, and how we know Israel's grand narrative ends in mind. Now, going back to the Old Testament with Jesus in mind can actually be a really delicate balance to tread. And the reason is because, as Christians, it's very easy for us to bias towards reading Jesus into every page of Scripture. Some scholars refer to this as something called a Christocentric approach, which is when, in our really well-meaning effort to keep Jesus as the center of the story that God is telling in the Bible, we tend to place Jesus into books, passages, and even specific verses that really aren't about Jesus at all. A few years ago, for those of you who were around, Pastor Omer actually gave a really fun sermon on messianic prophecies, where he talks about, as Christians, how easy it is for us to go back to some of the prophetic passages in the Old Testament and think that all of them are predicting Jesus as the Messiah, when in reality, they're talking about something very different altogether. But I think that it would be remiss for us, right, as Christians to not want to go back to the Old Testament with Jesus in mind. In fact, it's one of the most natural things for us to do. So an alternate way of thinking about our text is something called a Christotelic approach. And Christotelic has the Greek root telos in it, which means end, purpose, or goal. As opposed to reading Jesus into every page of scripture, we instead see Jesus as the grand culmination of the story that God is telling in the Bible. So we honor Old Testament texts for their original purpose and context and for the audiences that they were written for, while still understanding that all of those texts are puzzle pieces laddering up to a much bigger story that God is telling, resulting in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I think a really good example of this is for those of us who've read Harry Potter. When we get to the end of the Harry Potter story, we're able to go back and reread those books or rewatch those movies with a much more profound sense of how love operates in that universe in ways that we probably never could have imagined before. When we allow the voices of the Old and New Testaments to be in conversation with each other, I think we can unlock a whole lot of possibility in terms of the story that God is telling in our world. Jesus himself did that all the time. And so let's take a page from his book and do a little bit of that together today. 
I want to try to hit on a couple key themes in today's lesson. The first is the relationship between wisdom literature and Jesus. The second is the relationship between Kohelet, the teacher figure in Ecclesiastes, and Jesus. And third, how we might revisit the book of Ecclesiastes today from a post-resurrection vantage point to infuse new meaning and possibility into what we take away from the text. So let's tackle that first question. What on earth does wisdom literature have to do with Jesus? And the answer is actually a whole lot. The New Testament portrays a few powerful ways in which wisdom plays a role in Jesus' life and ministry. First, the gospel accounts spend a lot of time portraying Jesus as a sage whose ministry was deeply, deeply influenced by Israel's wisdom tradition. Right off the bat in Luke's gospel account, we read that Jesus was filled with wisdom and that everybody who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. Some scholars, like Ben Witherington, estimate that some 70% of the Jesus tradition is made up of wisdom of some form, whether that's parables, aphorisms, riddles, or sometimes even Jesus's miracles. Let's start with Jesus's parables as an example, where wisdom has this constant surging undercurrent. In the parable of the wise and foolish builders, Jesus plays on these classic wisdom themes, which we've heard again and again and again in the series, to talk about how God's wisdom manifests on earth. Here's one example. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. I mean, that sounds a lot like something that we would hear right out of Proverbs, right? Another example is the parable of the ten virgins, where Jesus plays on this theme, this dynamic between wisdom and folly, which we've heard again and again and again in this series, to talk about Israel's preparedness for the kingdom of God. Now, these are just two examples of Jesus' parables, right? We could go back and read the gospel accounts, and what we'll find when we study Jesus' storytelling is that the presence of wisdom language is all over the place. And then we have these aphorisms, these pithy one-liners or statements that Jesus makes about the world around him that strikingly echo Old Testament wisdom ideas. Here's one that Pastor Danielle referenced a couple weeks ago. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. So we read that in Luke's gospel account. And here's what we see in Proverbs. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. Here's another one. In Matthew, we read, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then again, in the book of Proverbs, pride brings a person low, but the lowly in spirit gain honor. See what's happening here? Let's do one more just for fun. Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And Proverbs, yet again. And if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So I think it's clear how deeply influenced Jesus was by Israel's wisdom tradition. He read it, he was well-versed in it, and it shows up everywhere in his storytelling. But here's what's amazing. 
The gospel accounts don't just stop at portraying Jesus as some kind of a sage or wisdom teacher. They go one step further and make a pretty amazing and radical claim. And that is that they actually portray Jesus as wisdom itself. A few weeks ago, Pastor Danielle described the persona of Lady Wisdom, which is the literary personification of what God's wisdom looks like on earth. Here's what we read about Lady Wisdom in the Old Testament. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. And then later, does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the pads meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud, to you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. Lady Wisdom sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't she? Jesus' public proclamations announcing the kingdom of God and calling people to repent is a living personification of the way that wisdom is described in the Old Testament. Some scholars actually argue that wisdom was the firstborn of God's creation, and it's through wisdom that the rest of the universe was created. So in the New Testament, when we see language like Jesus being the firstborn of creation, and through Jesus, all things being created, that could be a deliberate allusion to Jesus being wisdom itself. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, we read that Jesus compares himself explicitly to the wisdom of Solomon, arguing that through him, people were experiencing something far greater than Solomon himself. Jesus quite literally becomes God's wisdom for us. In his book, Jesus as Sage, The Pilgrimage of Wisdom, New Testament scholar Ben Witherington says this, It would not be an improbable progression in early Judaism for Jesus not to merely be an utterer of wisdom speech, but also to represent himself as the embodiment of wisdom, wisdom in person. Jesus did not merely announce the inbreaking of God's dominion on earth. He believed that he brought it, and thus in some sense even embodied it. What is especially daring about the idea of Jesus taking the personification of wisdom and suggesting that he was the living embodiment of it is that while a prophet might be seen as a mashal or prophetic sign, no one, so far as one can tell, up to that point in early Judaism, had dared to suggest that he was a human embodiment of an attribute of God, God's wisdom. No other person before or after Jesus during the biblical era identified themselves with personified wisdom. Jesus challenges the way that Israel's establishment had misconstrued wisdom, much like Job's buddies had in the Old Testament. His living personification of what God's wisdom looks like in action in the world completely reimagined and reconstrued for God's people what wisdom in action was all about. It's really, really beautiful. Paul and other New Testament writers continue to draw upon wisdom language to make sense of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and how he brings order and goodness and righteousness to a confused world and makes all things right. When we follow the through line of Lady Wisdom throughout our biblical narrative, it opens up so many possibilities about what God is up to in our world.
Okay, so we spent a little bit of time focused on that broader relationship between Jesus and wisdom literature. Let's deep dive back into the book of Ecclesiastes. Scholars have pointed out a number of interesting parallels between Kohelet, the teacher or voice of Ecclesiastes, and Jesus. So I think it's a helpful exercise for us to go through and look at what some of those parallels might be. At a surface level, both Kohelet and Jesus are teachers who use the observable world around them to comment on the deeper nature of human life. So for those of us who have read through Ecclesiastes, Kohelet asks us to consider the sun, the wind, and the sea— in understanding life, while Jesus asks us to consider the birds, the lilies, and the mustard seeds. Kohelet uses features of day-to-day life, like eating, drinking, merriment, toil, royal tasks, and oppression, while Jesus uses day-to-day objects like debt, tax collectors, oil, lamb, sheep, coins, and so on. Kohelet and Jesus also both critique the power structures of their day. Kohelet spends a lot of time criticizing kingship, and Jesus, as we know, spends much of his life in ministry calling out Israel's establishment for their hypocrisy. Kohelet and Jesus also both use language with apocalyptic undertones. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Kohelet poetically describes the world coming to a grinding halt. And throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus uses very similar language to describe the impending destruction of Jerusalem. Kohelet and Jesus make counterintuitive points for their audiences. Kohelet takes his audience, who would have been very well-versed in Israel's wisdom tradition, and brings them to a much darker and more depressing place than they probably could have imagined, while Jesus spends much of his life and ministry completely subverting for his audience what the kingdom of God actually looked like. And then there's this last point, which I think is really beautiful. Jesus and Kohelet are both kingly figures who deeply experience God's despair, suffering, and abandonment. I think Pete Enns puts it beautifully when he says this. Kohelet is the wise Solomonic king entering into a state of alienation from God that is unique in Israel's scripture. His suffering is in no way vicarious, but it is representative, as any king of Israel was representative of his people. There is considerable value in posing Kohelet's dark night of the soul with that of Jesus. And despite both Kohelet and Jesus' despair, their suffering, and their intense feelings of God's abandonment, both their audiences are told to keep following God anyway. Now, the purpose of this exercise isn't to turn Kohelet into Jesus or Jesus into Kohelet. I want to emphasize that these are two completely different figures operating in very different contexts with different purposes for different audiences. But I think the value of doing this comparison is twofold. One, it helps us see how these classic wisdom themes permeate across wide swaths of times and contexts in our biblical narrative. And two, how the struggle of God's people is perennial. Kohelet experienced it. Jesus experienced it, and we continue to experience it today. When we allow these voices to be in conversation with each other, I think it unlocks some really beautiful, beautiful avenues for how wisdom plays a role in our biblical narrative. So we've spent some time walking through some of those surface-level parallels between these two figures, but what I want to do now is to focus on where they specifically diverge, and that's the topic of death. And I think it's this specific divergence today that allows us as Christians to go back and reread the book of Ecclesiastes with a fresh, renewed 
pair of eyes. Kohelet is a dude that obsesses about death. I mean, you can't get through more than a couple of verses of Ecclesiastes without being reminded of just how grim his worldview is, right? Here are a couple of passages that Pastor Omer referenced a few weeks ago that I want to put up as a reminder so we can get into the mind space of what a dark place Kohelet is in. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Another one. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely, the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so does the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? And one more, because this is a lot of fun, right? This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes us all. The hearts of the people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in hearts where they live. And afterwards, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. I mean, what is wrong with this guy, right? Like, this is grim, it's depressing, it's unnecessary. For Kohelet, death is the final leveler that renders everything under the sun meaningless. Eating, drinking, joy, love, our families, merriment, all of it means nothing because death is the ultimate unescapable part of an already absurd life. And while to us as Christians today, this might seem absurd and unnecessary and crazy, it actually makes complete sense when we consider the context in which Kohelet belonged. Kohelet's audience and Jesus' audience would have had very, very different notions of what death and the afterlife looked like. And I think that informs how we read Ecclesiastes today. So why don't we walk through that evolution together? N.T. Wright, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, does a really good job outlining how ancient Israel's views about death and the afterlife evolved over time. And he roughly breaks down that evolution into three distinct phases. The first phase was the absence of any hope after death. In the earliest periods of Israel's history, the belief was largely that there was no hope or joy or possibility for life after death. The view largely was that Sheol, the place of darkness in the Hebrew Bible where the dead go, would swallow people up into darkness and misery and despair, and that that was that. Nothing came after Isaiah 14 actually gives us a pretty grim picture of what people's worldviews about death looked like when it talks about the king of Babylon arriving in the underworld. We read this. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your harps. Maggots are the bed beneath you and worms are your covering. All the kings of the nation lie in glory, each in his own tomb. You were cast out away from your grave like loadsome carrion, clothed with the dead, those pierced by the sword who go down to the strokes of the pit like a corpse trampled underfoot. What is wrong with all these people? Like, what, what is going on here? But what we see is that this language actually becomes a formula for dying kings in Israel. 
So when we read stuff in the Bible, like David slept with his fathers or Solomon slept with his ancestors, what we're seeing is a worldview in which the dead stay dead. In fact, just looking within our wisdom canon, Job has a very similar point of view when he says this. But mortals die and are laid low. Humans expire, and where are they? As a river wastes away and dries up, so mortals lie down and do not rise again until the heavens are no more. They will not awake or be roused out of their sleep. So while dark to us, Kohelet's point of view actually makes complete sense when we consider the context in which it belonged. And then at some point later, though it's hard for us to pinpoint specifically when, Israel's view on death and the afterlife began to evolve from that devoid of any hope to that with subtle glimpse of hope. Israelites believed that their relationship with Yahweh was so strong and that God loved them so much that somehow, just somehow, though the mechanics of how it worked were unclear, God's love had to endure into the afterlife. We see evidence of this in places like the Psalms, where the psalmist enduringly describes how they hope that God's love would continue with them into the afterlife. Here's an example. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then a radical new idea emerges in Israel's history, and that's the idea of bodily life after death. Ideas in Old Testament books like Isaiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel became turning points in the way that Israelites thought about death and the afterlife. In the servant passages of Isaiah, we read of some kind of bodily life after death. But your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And then in the book of Daniel, which builds on ideas and language that we see set up in Isaiah, we read this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then we have Ezekiel, which has become one of the most quoted passages when scholars are trying to trace the origin of resurrection ideas in the Old Testament, and we read this. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, none of these passages are talking about resurrection in the sense that we understand it today. Most likely, they're talking about the national restoration of Israel and how God would breathe new life and creation and hope into Israel and make it whole again. But in the mid to second temple period, which were the centuries of time leading up to Jesus's day, these disparate ideas of bodily resurrection and national restoration became so intertwined in people's minds as a result of these texts that it paved way for an emerging resurrection theology to emerge. By the time we get to Jesus's day, 
most Jews were either aware of or believed in some kind of resurrection theology. In fact, the word anastasis, which is the Greek for resurrection, appears only two times in the Old Testament, but appears 42 times in the New Testament. What an evolution, right? But what nobody could have imagined, even with these resurrection ideas gaining steam, was Israel's Messiah being raised from the dead. Jews had hoped for some kind of bodily resurrection, and they had hoped for a Messiah. But until the time of the earliest Christians, nobody had put those two ideas together, because nobody in Israel's history, none of their most important figures, had been resurrected in this way. Jesus changes everything. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, through Jesus' resurrection, death has been swallowed up in victory and lost its sting. Jesus' victory on the cross robs the dark cosmic forces of our world of their power. And as Paul writes, truly death no longer has the last word. The misery, the darkness, the depressing nature of Kohelet's mindset in Ecclesiastes no longer is the final frontier. I think Pete Enns puts it beautifully when he says this. Just as the epilogue brings us to say to Kohelet, yes, you are right, but there is something more, so too does our post-resurrection vantage point bring us to look at Ecclesiastes as a whole and say, yes, you are right, there is something more. The difference, of course, is that the something more is the complex realization that however bound we are to traditional categories, they are now reconfigured in the crucified and risen Christ, who paradoxically embodies and transforms Israel's story. So what do we see when we go back to the book of Ecclesiastes and read it Christotelically. We no longer just see vanity. We no longer just see nothingness. And we no longer just see despair. Instead, through Jesus, we see possibility. We see new life, new hope, new creation, and a new covenant. Jesus helps us see the missing puzzle pieces to what Kohelet so despairingly grapples with in Ecclesiastes. Christotelically, we see that God's judgment looks not like darkness, like despair, or like misery, but that it looks like Jesus, making all things right. Now, none of this undermines Kohelet's struggle in Ecclesiastes and what he went through. In fact, I just think it makes it deeper. Kohelet's wrestling with God, the purpose of life, what he was doing on this earth, is a profound reminder for each and every one of us here what it looks like to live on earth with a finite amount of time. Old Testament scholar Ian Provain says this, in focusing our attention on this life rather than the next, indeed, this book contributes to the correction of an all-too-frequent imbalance throughout the ages in Christian thinking, which has sometimes presented Christianity as if it were more a matter of waiting for something than a matter for living. And I think that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection help us see that the most beautiful expression of that living and finite time finds itself in Christ, and that ultimately we find relief from the crushing weight and absurdity of this life through Jesus, divine wisdom in the flesh. It's that time of our service where we reflect on a tradition that was passed down from the very beginning. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.